There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, the drive. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Power Chord Hour podcast. Hope you're doing well and thanks for checking out another episode. As always, I'm your host Anthony Merchant here with you. and We got another interview for you on this one. I am so stoked about it. Midtown is one of those bands, I mean if we're talking favorite drive through bands are up there as one of my favorite drive through bands. Favorite pop punk bands are up there as one of my favorite pop punk bands. I mean just a punk band, whatever you want to call them. Chances are they're probably up there as one of my favorites, if you if you ask me some of my favorite bands. So I am very stoked on this one. We're talking 20 years of Save the World, Lose the Girl, Midtown's debut record released back in the year 2000. Crazy, I think it is 20 years old now. We're talking to half the band. We're going to be talking to Heath Saraceno and Rob Hitt, guitarist and drummer of Midtown. And this was awesome. I brought it up with, uh, with Joe Rio a few months ago with uh, Hidden in Plain View, and I interviewed him. But, uh, you know, it, it was six years ago now, but I skipped my community college graduation and drove like eight hours to Asbury Park to see Midtown reunite at the Skate and Surf Festival and also see Hidden Plain View play. I mean, a bunch of bands played Alkaline Trio, uh, Newfound Glory, The Early November, uh, Patent Pending, uh, United Nations, Jeff Rickley from Thursday's uh, side project. I mean, a bunch of other bands, amazing lineup. I will say, though. The main, the main reason was Midtown, because, I mean, Midtown, I never thought was going to get back together and the chance to go see them, which was also smart because, you know, it's been six years and they haven't reunited again. They're not a band who I think most people ever ever really thought were probably going to reunite. I, I know I didn't think that. So I had to go jump on that, and I, it did not disappoint. They were amazing. They played two sets, and uh, it, it was just absolutely great. So, you know, th- this was, I- I'm sure I don't have to say it, this was pretty rad to talk to, you know, half the band. Also about my favorite Midtown record, Save the World, Lose the Girl, easily my favorite. All three of their records are good, though. They really never put out a bad record. But, uh, you know, something about this one, it's my favorite. And uh, it-, it was just really cool to uh, talk to them and kind of get in-depth about this record, working with Mark Trombino, how the band got together, you know, all, all that all that good stuff, what the dudes are up to now. And, uh, you know, just absolutely fun. So I was really excited about this. So we're going to get into it with uh, Heath and Rob. I hope you enjoy it. You know, I, and I would love to know what is your favorite Midtown record? I, I I think that also, to me, that's a sign of a really good band, too, because there's some bands where most people, like if you ask, it's unanimous, like what their favorite record is. Everyone kind of picks like that one record with Midtown. I feel like there's a variety. I know a lot of people who would say, forget what you know is their best album. I would say other people are in the camp with me who love Save the World, Lose the Girl. There's other people who love Living Well is the Best Revenge. You know, I mean, you really can't go wrong with any of them. There's really, you know, in my opinion, I guess there's really not a wrong answer. They're all really good. Just Save the World happens to be my favorite. But hit me up, PowerCordHour at gmail.com. What is your favorite Midtown uh, record? And uh, maybe if you want to be badass, you can say their their best is the Sacrifice the Life EP. You can go, nah, screw all those full links. My favorite, it's it's that EP, man. So, uh, you know, it, it, maybe maybe you're a true OG fan. So so hit me up and let me know. But this was really rad. I can't thank Heath and Rob for uh, doing this uh, enough. This was this was absolutely awesome. Had so much fun talking to them. So right now, here's my interview with Rob Hitt and Heath Saraceno. We're talking 20 years of Save the World, Lose the Girl right here on the Power Court Hour podcast. 
Right now on the Power Chord Hour, we're talking to Rob Hitt and Heath Saraceno, drummer and guitarist of the band Midtown. And 20 years ago, they released their debut record, Save the World, Lose the Girl, personal favorite of mine, and I'm really stoked to talk all about it with Rob and Heath. How are you guys doing? Good, man. How are you? Doing well. I've been really, you know, really excited to uh, talk about the record. And before we get into the record itself, kind of jumping back to the beginning of Midtown for a second... You know, prior to Midtown, was this one of your, like, for both of you, is this one of your first bands? I mean, Rob, I do know of the royalties, but, I mean, besides that, like, was Midtown <laughs> was Midtown one of the first ones for both of you? Yeah, so I think, I think for me, it's one of those things where, like, what, what constitutes your first band, right? Is it, is it when you're in a basement looking through an encyclopedia? or a dictionary to try to find a cool word or two cool words and put them together, even though you've never played a show and never will play a show, or is your first band <laughs> the one that plays a backyard, right? Something I go with like the backyard, that. yeah. Yeah, so so my, my first, this is actually very ironic, my first band in high school was this little pop punk band, the kind, this is like like just out of the grunge era, so you, you covered Nirvana, but you'd also cover Screeching Weasel and Operation Ivy and things like that. So there was this weird, like, melting pot of finding yourself. But that band was called Negative Five. And we actually played shows with a band called Nowhere Fast. You know, and then Heath is also on the line. I mean, Heath, you could say more about this in your first band. But that little pop punk band I was in in high school played shows with Heath and Tyler's band from the town. Yeah, so Tyler and I were in a band called Nowhere Fast before we were in Midtown. Tyler was in the band from the very beginning. I joined at the at the very end, and that was the first band that I was in that played like hall shows and Elks Lodges and firehouses and things like that, like how we used to do in New Jersey twenty years ago. Uh, and before Nowhere Fast, I like Rob was saying he grew up playing in grunge bands. I grew up playing in bands that, uh, you know, we thought that we were dream theater. We were 15 and we could not, we, we couldn't do it. We just had 16 minute long songs before it's not repeated. Um, that's how I spent my high school. And then, um, you know, playing with Rob's old band, the royalties when I was in Nowhere Fast, uh, that was really where, where I started playing shows. But I think that when we came together as Midtown was when we all kind of stepped it up a little bit. I mean, Gabe was in a, another band. Gabe was in a band called Humble Beginnings uh, before we started Midtown and they were, I think of the three bands of the royalties, Noah Fast and Humble Beginnings. Humble Beginnings was the, the bigger of the three. Um, I think they had toured. They they played out in like Chicago, right, Rob? Did they did they go to Chicago on a tour? I'm sure they did, because um, I know Humble had that split vinyl with. Was it Oblivion? Am I making that up? No, it is because well, I think, I, I yeah. own that seven inch. So yes, that oh, okay. it was with Oblivion. And they might be from Ohio or something like that, but I just uh, touring out west. Um, seems like that would have made a lot of sense i'll say this though like that that band the royalties that i was in we would do this whole thing where we do you know the the three day weekend tour right the, the friday saturday sunday or if you have a day off where you'd go to philly come back to jersey go to dc come back to jersey and go to massachusetts and go back and the reason it was such insanity and even even in the beginning of midtown you do these shows that were literally four or five hours away. You would come home after the show, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, head back out 300 miles to the next show. It's, yeah. It was it was like that. That's like beginning band 
trials and tribulations. Was that was that fun though at the time? Like, I mean, being so new to it, was it was it at least exciting doing that stuff? Or even then, was it still kind of grueling doing you know like the five hour drives and whatnot? Oh, oh it, was, it was incredible! It was so cool. It was awesome getting out of the house. The first time that we went out of state in Midtown, we had to rent a van. Rob, do you remember renting that van? Where did we rent it from? We rented it from this place on Route 22. We had to get my dad to sign it. (laughs) My dad had to sign for the van. So, and and Rob drove this thing. Rob had never driven a a big vehicle like that before, but he drove it all the way up to Massachusetts for us. And that was exciting because, like, we're like, we've never been in a van like that before. So it, it was just all new. It was all exciting. And, and then, you know, we didn't know what we'd get. Like, as far as like for Rob, like for you, the royalties and like nowhere fast and whatnot, like as far as timelines go, are we talking that's all within high school then? Um, so I, I'm like, even though now it's, it's funny because I was always, I, I basically in the eyes of, of Gabe, Heath and Tyler, I was about 15 to 20 years older than all of them in their minds. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in reality, I'm literally one year older than Heath and two years older than Gabe. Uh, and three years older than Tyler. So, uh, t- <laughs> you know, time is a funny thing. Um, but yeah, so for me, I, I was at Rutgers when we started, but the thing was, um, we actually had a little bit of overlap when, you know, Tyler was still in high school. Uh, I think Gabe was actually, uh, might've just what got into Rutgers, but, uh, where I had the royalties, and we did a few shows with the royalties and Midtown. And I remember specifically one being at Cheesequake Firehouse. He, you remember this place, Cheesequake Firehouse? I remember the name being a lot of fun to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I don't, that's I don't right. <laughs> so there was this guy, there was this band called the Youth Ahead, a uh, local Jersey little pop punk band. And uh, Jay, the drummer, I think his father um, was a firefighter. So, or, or fireman, whatever the firefighter sounds like. I'm a five-year-old, uh, you know, I want to be a firefighter. No, um, <laughs> no, but uh, his dad put on the, put on all the shows. So before Midtown was even a band, I was friends with Jay. So he put on the royalties all the time. So then Midtown becomes a band and the royalties, like, I was like, I kind of felt badly. I knew the guys didn't want to be in a band anymore other than the singer of the royalties. But like, and I really just want to do Midtown. So I was kind of like, all right we'll do these final royalty shows and cause I'm going to do midtown moving forward. But Jay was able to, from the youth I had, was able to, to put us both on the shows and we did some of that for a minute. But uh, yeah, I think to answer your question specifically, um, I was definitely in college at that point and I might've been a sophomore. Oh, okay. And then in college too, for midtown, right? That's how you, it was you, Gabe and Ryan at first, correct? Um, or not Ryan. No, no, it was me, Rob, me, that's me, uh, Tyler, and and Gabe. That's right, yeah. So, but then uh, Heath, Heath was kind of the last one, right? You were kind of the last one in, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, I came in basically right before we went in to record the EP. So then uh, how- We should be clear. We should be clear about one thing. Heath, in my mind, you were actually always in the band before oh, you God. knew, before, no, 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 hold on. <laughs> Before you actually knew you were in the band. Do you know uh, what I'm talking about? I, I, I do. It reminds me of a, a, a birthday card that Liz's mom got for her one year that said, before you were born, I, I knew you. Okay. I feel like it's, it's the same thing. <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah. So the point of this, the point of the story is uh, when we were at Rutgers, Heath wasn't technically, well, Heath wasn't in the band, but Heath, Heath was in a band with Tyler from Nowhere Fast. Right. Our which, which, which had broken up, but nobody told me about it. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. That's fucked up. <laughs> like, it's news to you. Yeah, I was like, guys, we playing these shows, and they're like, no, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think so. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that, man. I'm glad that we were able to uh, to convince you to join to join Midtown. Well, as it turns out, I was already in Midtown at the time, so that's good. Yeah. So what out. happened was, wait, like, listen, we'll pretend Heath's not on the line. Even back then, we knew Heath was this fucking sick guitar player right like he was you know just like the, the clear difference like like you said uh, my first bands we covered operation ivy and nirvana he was just like dream theater and metallica so that can show you the technical differences in, in, in both of us but that being said um we knew we wanted Heath in the band like we just like everything like we we loved him as a person and and we knew he was a sick guitar player and it would also an, allow, because I think at that point, Gabe was even tinkering around playing guitar instead of playing bass. He just knew he wanted to sing. So at that point, we're like, okay, how do we get friggin' Heath in the band? So we're like, okay, Tyler, since you were nowhere fast with Heath, you're going to go hang out with him. And me and Gabe are going to be conveniently happen to be at the Grease Trucks, which is this little parking lot in New Brunswick, New Jersey, where, you know, it's like there, there's literally eight trucks and you just go up and there food trucks before food trucks were a thing, right? So we get Heath, we, 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 me and Gabe show up, Tyler brings Heath there and he's like, and we're like, oh, Heath, how are you? Oh, funny to see you here. What are you doing here? But all in the background, this was all a setup and we had actually <laughs> already booked rehearsal space preemptively before this even was, you know, Heath was there. Knowing we wanted to bring Heath back, play him some songs, and be like, "Yo, dude, like, will you be in our band? Do you want to be in our band?" So, um, <laughs> you know, the way that I I see it in my head is we saw Heath. We said, "Oh, why don't you come watch us play?" You know, reality we probably it's it's basically like tying somebody up and throwing them in the back of a trunk of a you know some like car from the fifties. Get him to rehearsal space, play him a bunch of songs put him in a corner and be like, yo, so you're going to be in our band, right? It probably wasn't that, you know, mafia ish, but that's kind of how we really wanted him in the band. So, you know, he, I mean, I don't know exactly what were your feelings at that time coming to this rehearsal thing and seeing us try to like, Hey, will you be in a band? Was it like that to you or was it more serious? Well, I was pretty stupid. So at first, I didn't know that you wanted me to join the band. I thought you were just like bouncing ideas off me. Like, so like, this is our new thing. This is what, kind of the direction I'm going. And I was like, oh, man, I'd love to be in this band. That would be so cool. Uh, and then at the end of it, you guys were like, well, we're looking for a second guitar player. I was like, oh, all right. Well, I know these songs already. So let me just take a take a crack at it. And, uh, and then I think we practiced one more time after that. And then we went into record. Um, yeah. It was, I mean, it happened so fast for me. I know for you guys, there was more of a buildup because you were practicing together for weeks, for months. But for me, I feel like I just came in, someone threw me on a train that was moving and handed me a drink and was like, get comfortable. So, yeah. <laughs> that's what happened to me. <laughs> Recline, lean back. 
Yeah. Did, were you playing any shows then before recording, or did you guys get right into like writing songs and getting ready for that first EP? Um, well, there were five songs. They had five songs, then we recorded songs. We knew that we didn't want to play any shows until we had like a demo or an EP or something that we could um, give out or sell at shows, so people could have the music and they, they could like you know come prepared, basically. I mean, I love, there's so many bands that I love, I, I've loved seeing play live, but one of the worst shows that I ever saw was one of my favorite bands, Jets to Brazil, and it was the week that Four Corner Night came came out, and I didn't have the record yet. They played all of those songs, and I didn't know any of them. I just felt like out of place, and I wanted to interact with the band, I wanted to like make, have it be a special show, and I have no memories of it because I didn't know any of the songs. Um, and I think that we knew right away that we wanted um, we wanted to connect with people who were there to to come to the shows and and we wanted them to know the songs while we were playing. So we I think we played maybe one show before the BP was out because oh, wow. it got pushed back in production. But we we knew right away that we wanted to have some music at the first show. And I think did we we might have even burned some CDs for that first show potentially but we might have, yeah. yeah but the 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 idea was like this was pre-streaming right so it was it was more of the like for me it was kind of like all right you can if i'm a fan and i'm going to see a band perform at, before streaming right i see him play then i go home and then it's like i'm empty right i i there's no if, if i don't have a cd I can't enjoy it. I can't take it with me. I can't appreciate it. So for us, it was kind of like, all right, like what's, what's the point of doing a show if we don't have somebody, something that people can take home with them, you know, to enjoy. So then the next show they can sing along and have a great time. And that was kind of the, the impetus to, to say, okay, let's just wait and do it, do it right. Because we were, even though these bands were small and high school bands, we kind of saw how it worked and, you know, you saw how we didn't like things and wanted to say, let's, let's kind of like put this band together the way we've, if we could have like an optimal way to do it, to enjoy it and make it work. Let's try it that way. I like, mm-hmm. I like where, where both you're coming from with that too. Cause I, I agree too. It's like, even I think of that kind of like with opening bands, like even if I see an opening band that I really like who I've never heard of before, it's like, you can enjoy it, but you can only enjoy it so much if you're not familiar with the music, I think. So to me, that makes sense. You know what I mean? To have something out beforehand. Like, you know, I, I, I get where you're coming from with that. I, I think that was probably a smart idea. And then you mentioned, like, uh, possibly having burnt discs for that. Would those, would those have been different songs in the EP? Like, would those, would those have been, like, demos you self-recorded? Or did you, you mean, like, when you say burnt CDs, were you burning that EP before the EP itself was released? No, that would have been, um, like, you know, physically, it's the exact same EP. Um, because back, this is what, this was 99. So what people did is they go listen in their car to, you know, some sort of CD. So back then, if you were to send off your masters to like disc masters or whatever pressing plant that's manufacturing the CDs could take two months to get it back. So we're just like, fuck it. Let's go home. Let's stay up all night. Let's, you know, mass produce these CDs in any way we can from like our computer to our CD cdr cd drive and then you could buy these little things at staples it was like this little kit where you actually buy cd labels 
and you can print out the CD labels out of your, you know, inkjet printer, and then you could slap them on the like the homemade CDs that you made. Go to the shows. And I think we probably sold them for two or three bucks uh, in that case. And like honestly, bands, young bands that that somehow could get that like opening slot on the Warp Tour side stage or the Kevin Says side stage, that's what they all did from I don't know ninety eight to two thousand and four. It was like you didn't. If, if you couldn't have a CD manufactured because of turnaround time or because you just don't have a label, that's what you would do. That was that was your mixtape. That was your demo. <laughs> that's so crazy to think of now. Just nowadays where, you know, you just like, hey, check out, check us out on our SoundCloud or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. having to do something like that. That's, I don't know. It's crazy to think of now, I guess. But a lot, a lot has definitely changed in that 20-something years. And then, uh, 20 years, <laughs> isn't that crazy? Or what would that yeah. be then for the EP? That was 21 then. Right. Cause the EP was 99. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the best way to like, like think about it, right. So if that's 21 years ago and that was 1999, think about 21 years from 1999 would be 1978. There's no such thing <laughs> as even a CD from then to then. Like that's how crazy it is. It was eight track vinyl and, cassettes that's what you had in 78 so. yeah, that's insane yeah there, there really is like the the pace of it all you're you're right like you probably wouldn't have been able to even do that before well i guess yeah they would have been burnt tapes i guess i guess yeah you would have did it on yeah. cassette then after that ep then so that was 99 and then save the world lose the girl comes out the following year i mean pretty pretty soon after the ep it seems like like how how soon after that came out were you writing songs for the uh, full length right away i mean we we had i think two two or three songs for that written before the ep even was released um i think we had such a person pretty early on right rob we had that one early on we had um well, another we, one we put, we we put direction on there yeah we had direction we had come on on there and what we, was we the, wanted the that. fourth song on on the ep what was that called the fast one living in spite oh maybe not okay we had at least such a person we were playing we were playing that live for a while and then like because the other thing too i was wondering it seemed then like right away too also like how soon did you drive sign to drive through by the time that ep came out and that that seems like that had to be almost instantly yeah so so gabe knew richard and stephanie through humble beginnings i don't know if they ever talked about potentially releasing humble but um they were certainly friends um even to the fact that at some point when we were all still at Rutgers, I remember Richard and Stephanie came to those same grease trucks with us that we actually, you know, plucked uh, Heath out of nowhere fast from. But um, there was a there was a moment when, you know, the, like a week after Heath was even was in the band and we went to record our first EP. We were literally at Chris Badami's studio in New Jersey and Gabe called Richard and Stephanie um, on the phone and. They said, okay, let us hear the music. We're like, well, we're, it's 1999. We're in a studio in New Jersey. They're like, no, hold the phone up to the speaker. So we <laughs> held the phone up to the speaker. We were listening to the songs. And they're like, it was basically at that moment, they were like, we want to work with you. So um, physically being signed at that moment, no, but that was pretty much the moment that, uh, you know, it started to go. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. So before you even had the music out then, no, no wonder that was so fast. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think they believed in, I mean, they certainly believed in Gabe. There's no question about that. And that, in addition to the music, I think made it made it pretty easy for them to get excited quickly. And as far as songwriting went on uh, Save the World, Lose the Girl, how did that tend to work? I mean, would someone kind of write something and bring it in? Was it more of a group effort? How'd you guys used to write? Ooh, man, it, every song was different. Um, I mean, I know Gabe had a lot of songs that came in pretty well formed. Um, and we would kind of tweak the arrangement here and there. Maybe the tempo, the drum beat would change a little bit. But others were were um, more collaborative. Um, some some came in just just bizarre. Like um, there are two short songs on the album, and I think we knew from the beginning that that we just wanted them to be short bursts of energy, and and that was that. We didn't really spend too much time on the writing of them. Um, and others we we didn't really finish until we were ready to lay down the vocals. Um, I know that with No Place Feels Like Home, we recorded all the music, all the overdubs, and then it was time to record the vocals. And we're like, oh yeah, we, we didn't do that yet. So <laughs> we just did that in the studio. And then where what studio did you guys end up recording that at anyway? Um, did we do the whole thing at Doug Messenger's, Rob? Um, I think we did. We did the pre-production um, for Save the World, Lose the Girl with Heath Miller. Heath Miller, he used to run all the rock shows uh, up until they um, rebuilt Webster Hall uh, about a year ago. Um, we went into his basement because he had some kind of eight track. So, so he, we did the demos uh, literally in his basement for pre-production. And then we went out um, and we had, we must have had two or three days of pre-production with mark trombino at some rehearsal space heath i don't know yeah. if you remember that i'm pretty sure we did yeah um, it was very and then we went, yeah and then this guy doug messenger um was in uh north north hollywood i think um yeah he had the studio and uh and then like 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 thinking back in it it was just like a big rectangle there was like nothing else <laughs> is that right Heath? it was just like uh, i think so yeah um and the other thing I remembered about it was like Mark Trombino, I guess, was able to get us there. And in Mark's mind, we're we're a little punk band, which which we were. Um, and it'd be fun to do a little punk album, maybe take seven to ten days to do it. Um, little did he know there was all sorts of things like I had never played drums to a click track before. Um, our songs are probably a little more complicated than anybody realized. Um, we were all probably a little neurotic about making things a little more perfect. Um, so uh, I think that might have, for his little recording that he thought was going to take seven days, um, we ended up being in the studio with Mark Trombino probably around three, three and a half weeks, I think. Oh, wow. Is that yeah. right, he? Yeah, it was very long. It was mm -hmm. it was long. Singing was difficult too, laying down the vocals, because you know, there are three of us, and um, we'd never sang the way that he wanted us to, to sing on the record. Like we would get to a pass and then he would kind of comp the vocals and we were not ready for that vocally. We were not ready. It took, took a long time. And then like for as far as Mike or not Mike, Mark Trombino, like he ended up doing that. And I know he did living well as the best revenge as well. Like, did you, did you guys pick him because of like his previous work with like Jimmy world and blink One Eighty Two? Like, why'd you guys end up going with him? Oh, he was literally, like I don't think there was anybody else that we really even wanted than him. Um, he correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like I remember so clearly. 
we loved Clarity, the, album, the Jimmy World album Clarity. Like, like for a lot of people our age at that time that were into the scene, that was like, you know, you had you had the, the, the kids that like the Foo Fighters, the kids that like Radiohead, and then the emo kids all like their album was that Jimmy World Clarity, <laughs> their like Mecca album. So yeah. even though we don't sound like Jimmy World, like we love that album. But that plus how big, because at that point, like we, I also loved Blink-182, you know, circa, you know, Dude Ranch era. And so the fact that he did that, and even though Dude Ranch, you know, wasn't their biggest, it didn't end up being their biggest album. It was so much in the ether of alternative radio, that album especially like specifically damn it it was on top damn it was on top 40 radio it was like on every format so you know the fact that he had something major with a band that we loved and did Jimmy World Clarity it wasn't even like you know taking darts and you know you know throwing it at a board it was like he was our guy that was our number one and somehow because he thought it was going to be a seven day project for some <laughs> little punk band he said yes oh yeah I'll do it you know you got you know I don't know five ten thousand dollars i have no idea how much it cost but and, and he said yes and we're like okay like <laughs> this is the best thing ever we we, we gotta try it and we were i was intimidated like it was fucking crazy because mark was a drummer so for me as a drummer like that had never played with a click before and this like you know for us this, this producer that we all like was our number one choice as a drummer i went in there pretty much shaking like i was like oh shit so that that's yeah, Mark's you know, mark He's a badass drummer too. He hits mm-hmm. hard. He's in the pocket, and that must have been really difficult to to step in and play in front of that guy. Yeah, I mean, it's a- you did it. You did it, Rob. Thank you, thank you. you Shame it. I couldn't do the fast songs on the quick, but you know, it is it, 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 it's how we live. It's twenty years in the past. Swear to God, in the past. How how is he like as a producer? I mean, is he really on your ass, or I mean, is he fairly laid back? He was pretty. He was pretty laid back. Um, yeah, I don't think he ever yelled at us. Nothing um, that no. extreme. It was more a disappointment um, when we couldn't get <laughs> things right. <laughs> that, that's that's about right. Yeah, yeah. just like uh, like just what you just get like, done right. Just you how do you not know it. what that harmony is supposed to sound like? <laughs> how do you not? Yeah. How how did you come in here without having a, a line for that chorus? <laughs> What were you thinking? It was like that. Yeah. Just make you feel bad about yourself instead. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, but he had he had a lot of great input, uh, and he he got incredible tones, um, you know. And he uh, he was the first real professional uh, producer engineer that we had ever worked with. I mean, you know, the the EP we did with uh, with this guy Chris Badami in New Jersey who had a, a studio and. You know, he was a couple of years out of school. He was he, constantly learning. He's he's gone on to do some really incredible records, um, and he was great when we were working with him. But he was he was green in the in the scheme of things. And Mark was like a weathered musician first, who had like a, a, an incredible career as a, a performer, and then he started putting out these records, which was our favorite record of all time. So it was just uh, it, it was a, a totally different vibe going in with Mark as is where we were before with Chris. One of the cool things about Mark that I think gets forgotten today because of how common, you know, anything from like a sample to, you know, a reverse cymbal swell and like all these like weird little like quirky things you can do in music. Back then, even in 99, 
Pro Tools was still like kind of not super common. And every producer wasn't totally using strictly the computers at that point. So right. he he was actually like he would do things like purposely because you know he really he he was so into tones and you know having things sound warm and right we recorded and say there was the girl we recorded the drums the tape and then he imported that tape into the computer to line up the drum parts that were a little far off and then you know and that's how that's how we would do some of the things we wouldn't just record in the computer or just record on the tape you know he would pick and choose what he wanted to do and then he'd take stuff into you know, into Pro Tools and do those things that are so commonplace today, like like the beat detective, but he would do it manually, physically looking at a line the, on the, the transients. He'd find the transients of like each snare hit and line oh, it up. Oh my god, that yeah. had to be monotonous. Oh, I'm sure he hated it. And that's that was the <laughs> thing. I remember coming in like the next day, he's like, I need three days off to be able to like just work on the drums. So I was done with my drum tracks and he spent a few days just on his own. And that probably made him hate me to death, to be honest with you, because <laughs> nobody wants to do that. But I commend him because in theory, he doesn't have to go in and do that. He can just finish the album and not put that care into it. So I think that's probably also what make, makes him a, a great producer and, and a great donut maker. Let's just be clear. I mean, that, that's true. Yeah, that was my next question. I wasn't sure. Has he named a donut after Midtown yet? He has, yeah, Midtown. It's a uh, it's a chocolate mint donut. I haven't tried it. Rob, have you had it? You've been there to try it. So I went I went less than a year ago to L.A. and I went to I went to the store, his donut place, and they said we don't have any. Uh, Miss Town out up front yet, but we can make you one if you want. I was just like, I'm just gonna get Polar Berry Club. So he had a <laughs> donut called Polar Berry Club, which actually had real berries on it. So I got that instead. But I wasn't about to like geek out and be like, I w- I was in Midtown and it's called Midtown. I was not gonna be that guy. I was not the guy wearing his own T-shirt to the show. I demand you know, my Midtown donut. Yeah, but I would like to try Midtown. It, it was an early on. I think it was in the first series of donuts he did. I, I don't know if it if it had much staying power. You know, it's funny because like like a second ago we were talking about like him doing you know going back to uh, him recording Save the World '99 and you know the limitations of everything. You have me going back now to Clarity, thinking of of the end of Goodbye Sky Harbor and how like how the hell did they do that? I'm thinking back now. I'm going with the technology at the time. That's even more crazy to me. And some of the other stuff he did on that record too, as well. Oh yeah, like how many hard drives did he have to have to run to just store all that data? <laughs> right. And then you know, like, because really, I really think for a debut, I was thinking this, but "Save the World, Lose the Girl" sounds really solid and focused to me. Like, I think there's a lot of bands where they put out their first album and it sounds like their first album. Whereas I feel like, I mean, at least from a listener, it sounds like you guys knew what you were kind of doing on that record and what you wanted. I mean. Would you say that you went in with a pretty good idea or was some of that Mark helping you shape kind of what the sound of that album would be and kind of what you'd want out of it? Mm. Uh, yeah, the reason the reason I'm hesitating, Heath, is like I feel like it actually is a little all over the place. I, you yeah. know, like so I, it, I think it was the sequencing of the tracks of how we ended up putting it together that actually made it feel like it worked. 
in a way. And that was part of like, I remember clearly looking at that track listing as like, you don't just want to put songs you like together, make them feel like, like there's an up and down that the, that, that a track listing is more of a roller coaster and the way songs go, go into each other. Um, I think was direction second on, on save the world. I think it is. I believe, I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because yep. I re- I remember thinking, you know, because I I actually had to fight uh, Mark Trombino on the first song on the album. He wanted to, um, what was the like oh, track seven? What was the super fast song? Yeah, I love it. I'm in the band and I can't even remember the, the track. Another, is it another he, boy? So yeah. Is that, so so he, he wanted to open. Mark wanted to open with another boy, which is about let's just say it's a 45 second uh, fast like wag wagony fast punk song, right? So. Okay. He wanted to open with it because, oh, this is a punk band, fun, get people into it going. And I had to find him like, no, 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 Mark, you don't get it. I've never heard anything in my life like this song, Just Rock and Roll, that starts out with four guy, three guys screaming the chorus lyric, and then it goes into the song. You know, like, I never heard anything. So I finally fought him. He finally gave in. So... That allowed us to get just rock and roll first on the, which by the way, I appreciate him caring again enough as the producer, not just to record and take the paycheck, but to care enough about the track listing to want to, you know, have this, you know, as part of his collection of work that, that, that he's done. So, so then to go into track two of direction, it's like, okay, I knew I wanted to bring it down a little bit, at least in the beginning, like how direction starts, how the first verse comes in. And then you can get to the course where it comes back up in direction from there and then. So is, as far as like gear wise on that record, like Heath for guitars and amps, what are some of the stuff that you used on of it, on it? Uh, so we went, we went out there with our, with our live gear, which was at the time I was running a Mesa Boogie Mark III and Tyler had a Marshall uh, JCM 900. So those were the main amps on the record. He had a, I had a black PRS, and I had a uh, 93 Les Paul Studio Light. Uh, I would say probably, you know, 95% of the guitars in that, those two guitars. Uh, we, I think we just played through our own rigs. And I had my dad's 1977 Penco Dreadnought Acoustic that we used for Freight Ends. Excuse me, it's pretty bare bones. The only real standout amp that we used on there was like a mid fifties uh, Fender Bassman. Oh, nice! I think it had like four tens in it. It's the it's the guitar that you hear in the beginning of uh, No Place Feels Like Home, and if you listen to it really loud, you can hear that the speaker is crackling. Oh, really? I have to listen yeah, for that like, now. Yeah, it's a pretty cool tone, um, and we didn't know. That the that the speaker was like kind of distorting until we wanted to mix it. We then we totally isolated it, and we were like, "Wow, that's that was a pretty cool sound." Um, we put a little bit of slapback delay on that too, just just a little bit. But besides that, the only effects on the record um, are a phaser that we put on the uh, the guitar solo in the beginning of Dress Rock and Roll, and everything else is just straight amp tones nothing crazy oh really? what about in let go what did you do in let go on the guitars because i remember somehow it had like that weezy weezer vibe and you, you guys did something cool to make that that sound like that untraditionally yes yeah we did we did um we played i played that part like flat no um 
no vibrato, just a do no no no. I played it an octave down on the electric with distortion and an octave higher on it with a clean guitar, maybe two octaves higher on a clean guitar. So when those two blended together, it sounded kind of like a like a square wavy keyboard. Synth. I yeah. thought it was synth <laughs> until right this second. I thought that was a synth in, on the record. I did not realize that was your guitar. <clears throat> yeah, that's just two guitar tracks, uh, one dirty and one clean, just spaced out by an octave or two. Oh my god, that sounds really cool. That really does like emulate a, like a synth really, really well. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should have done awesome. that more in the future. Yeah, that's yeah. a good that's a good like recording yeah. secret, honestly. Yeah. And then Rob, as far as you and I mean, like I'm not a drummer, so I don't know a lot about this, and I'd be interested to know like when it comes to recording drums. And I mean, we can we can talk specifically on this record, um, but like. Do you just kind of have the same drum setup and like mic placement the whole time, or does that stuff kind of change from song to song? I mean, is it for drums? Is it basically you set up the way you want, they mic it the way it best sounds, and you just do that for every song? So I think for drums specifically, like I think producers are real specific about what they like. So um, Mark Chambino had a Black Beauty, Ludwig Black Beauty snare drum. That I, th- I think he basically brought that in for every album, for every band that he had recorded with. And he just knew what he liked. And for, you know, so, so regardless of anything else, he wanted to use that. And producers, I found this a lot with producers. They know how they can get the drum sound that they like. And it's always meticulous and hard to find the drum sound. So that's why, you know, as a drummer, I think a lot of times for recording, it's more about what the producer wants and less about what the, the drummer wants and, and how they set up. And like, I remember Mark doing this whole crazy thing where you know, for the bass drum, where he, he set up um, one mic, a tunnel. Yeah. yeah. He said yeah, one mic tunnel. in the drum, one mic in front of the drum. And then he put like, like imagine one of those cloth packing sheets. He mm-hmm. kind of had a tunnel extending out from the bass drum further out with this long like i don't know we'll say six foot packing sheet you know think social distancing about six (laughs) feet (laughs) and and i think he had another microphone at the end of a cloth tunnel is that was it something like that he yeah yeah that's exactly what it was i think he used like a road case to build the sides and the top of the tunnel oh my god (laughs) yeah imagine the studio two sides of a road case going six feet down (laughs) With yeah, the no, top covered I, have photos by I have like actual printed photos of that of that tunnel. I mean, as you're watching him do that, what was your th- like? I mean, were you like, oh, he knows what he's doing? You're kind of like, what the hell is this guy doing? Oh, clarity. <laughs> oh, there. Yeah, you know what? That is the best answer. Clarity. Yeah. That is that is the greatest answer. I mean, one of the best <laughs> albums like ever. Yeah, that's insane. That really does though. Hearing stories like that also makes you go, okay, no, that's why that guy is such a good producer. That yeah, he's doing. I would say if he didn't give a shit about your record, he wouldn't have uh, did all. You know, went went to those yeah. lengths to get drum tones. Listen, I was gonna say I'm 21, 22. Whatever he says, I'm doing. Like <laughs> yeah. that's it. I mean, going going back for the second record, did you feel Rob for you? I mean, like like you said, I mean, he's such a good drummer. Did you feel a lot less pressure when it was time to do Living Well with him? I mean, was some of was some of that gone, or were you still like kind of nervous playing around him? So I was I was far more excited to go into the studio because I had practiced playing with the click track at that point, so I could go into the studio and actually enjoy and have fun um, in in a, in a different way. But 
even at that um, with living well, I remember specifically like one of the real trying and hard parts for me in the studio is one of the most simple sounding songs on living well is called like the move, like a movie. And for whatever reason, when Mark was listening back to it, he was like, um, I guess it just wasn't sitting with everybody. Whatever I kept recording on a super simple part of the song, the course, you know, uh, he, 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 he comes out and he's like, I, you can't get this. I'm just going to try this myself. And I'm like, Oh my God. Do you remember this? Heath? <laughs> I don't remember that. No. Oh my God. So he, he literally comes out. He takes my drumsticks from me. I don't remember who in the studio hit play, probably his engineer. He tries to do it. He goes back and listens. And it didn't sound right what he was doing. So he's like, you just go finish it. I can't. I'm not landing this either. So there must have been just something in the room in the playback that wasn't that wasn't sitting right. So that that was like, oh, my God, that was stressing. Um, and we well, I don't remember. A whole um, language. There's a whole language to music that like there's no um, like um, translation sometimes, you know, and we, we used to use this word when we're talking about guitar tones, like, oh, I want it to be like really like spongy, but I want it to have like this, like angular, I, you know, there's no word for that. So he probably had like an idea for the way he wanted the groove to go. And he just, he just couldn't communicate it with you. And, and then when he went in to do it, he realized that what he had in his mind just didn't work. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that, that's, that's what you have to do sometimes you have to just go through those motions and try and figure it out um but there's no uh there's no thesaurus or dictionary for for any of those terms there, there's a whole like 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 bands have their own sub language of um ways to describe music so for for instance like when you ever hear of like the term of like turning a beat around where you like Instead of doing it on the two and the four, you're kind of hitting the snare on the one and the three, whatever. Whatever that stuff means, don't worry about it. But like within Midtown, we called it the push beat. The push beat. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was called the push beat. Or if you wanted to do a super fast song, I was like, do that, do that, do that, do that, do that, do that. With that, I think we called that the no effects beat, right? Like, right. So <laughs> we, we had our own language. <laughs> and if you wanted to do that without the two hits on the snare drum, on the on the bass drum, now you were talking about like beat. the East Coast, like the lifetime beat, which is like so it's just these slight variations that there's no there's no way to communicate. Can we get a little more yeah. lifetime on that drum beat? You're doing a little a little two no no effects That's there. That's kind of right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is, that no, is but, awesome. Uh, but we did have an. I had another, another, another situation in the studio where uh, I remember. I think we were rec we were recording on "Find Comfort in Yourself," and the the high the hi hat is like double time, super fast. Like, and I remember, like, okay, normally it would be hard and challenging, but I guess the guys from Thursday were in LA at the time, and they were our friends. We went to college with them, but like, but they were like blowing up at that point. Like that was like, I think ninety nine was like. They had understanding and a car crash was out. And then they had that EP on Victory Records with that like white, white cover album. So like they were at the top of their game in 99. And it's sort of like they're there. And like I I love Tucker as a drummer. I was just like, I'm not fucking landing this. I mean, maybe I did it fine. I doesn't I don't I don't know. It doesn't matter. But that was one of those times where I'm like in the studio 
and your peers are there. They're like, oh shit, I really have to perform now. So it's that kind of stuff when you're when you're in the studio that gets you the things you don't think about going into it. And the band the band re-recorded uh two songs off the EP on Save the World. You guys did Direction and Come On. Were there any other songs off the Sacrifice of Life that were being considered to be re-recorded for uh Save the World? I don't I don't think we we thought about them. No, I don't think that they were being considered. Um, you know, th- those two direction and come on were the most like kind of straightforward rock songs. Uh, they they kind of fit with where we were going on the on the full length, and they were also two of our strongest live songs. So we wanted to kind of keep those keep those going. We thought we could improve upon them, um, which I don't know if we did or not. I feel um, like you did in some ways, yeah. Um, but the, there's something about those first recordings that like, <clears throat> there's, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit more, uh, grit to them that, um, you know, when we had the time in the studio for save the world, um, we just, it, it didn't seem like it had as much fire as it did on the EP. Um, I, th- I think so. you're saying, I think you're saying. Uh, I think they sound like they were played to a click track. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) And as as far as those recording sessions go for save the world, lose the girl. I mean, have we, have we heard everything basically that you guys recorded or are there any songs that got recorded for the album that have never been released to this day? Yeah, there's a, you know, the thing at the end of the album, that's just like the thing that sounds like it's from Mike Tyson's punch out. Oh yeah, like like at the very end, like where there's a space in between. There's a long yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. There was a full song that we recorded, um, and it just I don't know if it was the click track or or what. It just but it didn't it didn't work out. It was I think that whole song was like the, the fast beat song. It was like a no fast beat song. Um, <laughs> That's right. And it didn't it just didn't work. We just I don't even know if we finished recording the vocals for it. I don't think we finished the vocals. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the only one from those sessions that didn't see the light of day. And then when you guys when you guys uh, finished the record, then because like like you said, you really didn't tour beforehand. You were writing a lot. I mean, was that then like your first real tour outside of New Jersey? Did that come after Save the World? Then real Probably. tour, right? Well, like, yeah, like so, outside outside yeah. like a couple one offs. I'd say yeah, Any, anything like outside of the state, basically. Yeah. So we actually we actually drove out to that to recording that album playing shows right so we we toured down the east coast like every band that does their first you know tours or whatever band breaks but on the way out to recording save the world is the girl we did shows of newfound glory in florida and even though we were driving out to record our full length on drive through records we hadn't actually signed our contract with drive through yet. So we had a show with newfound glory the day before or after or whatever. We're actually, you know, by newfound glory's house. We we're playing a skate park with them in South Florida. Drive through had flown out to that show. Drive through has us in a hotel room. And they're like, Hey, come to our hotel room. You're going to sign the agreement here and now. So we signed the agreement. For the contract as we're touring out to Los Angeles, we leave that hotel room and then Newfound Glory walks into the same hotel room 
and they sign their contract to also be on drive through So this all happens within like a 30 minute period. Oh, we shit. both sign our contracts. Yeah. Wow. I did not, I yeah. did not realize it. And I didn't realize you toured the way there. That's actually kind of smart. I feel like it's kind of tore on the way yeah. out there, like including just for gas money, if nothing else to get, to get all the way down there or over there. I guess. Exactly. I say. Yeah. So I don't know. Heath, what other shows that wasn't the tour we did in El Paso on the way out to, to LA. Was it? Did we, what other shows did we do on that initial tour? Out it might've been, we toured down yeah. the coast with one cool guy. Mm-hmm. And then we got to Florida, we played the Newfound Glory shows. And then I think from there, we just drove. Because I think our van yeah. broke down in Texas. We stayed with Kicker and Beth for a couple of days. And then yeah. I think we just continued on yeah. to, uh, to L.A. I remember we did do this one show around that time. It might have been on that tour. It might have been right after on the way back. But um, we, play, we, we, we played a show in El Paso where we stopped in El Paso. And it was at this like arcade. Um, yeah. And I just remember like, I loved at the drive-in at this point in time, they had that one EP. It wasn't in cas- casino out, but it was like, what's Via, Via? or yeah, Via. Mm-hmm. Via fences with switches. Like I was just like, this is the best thing on the face of the earth. And we're like, the band was like, I think like Cedric or Omar from at the drive-in is that, is that the, uh, you know, is here because he owns this arcade venue thing in El Paso. And we're all freaking out. And in retrospect, we're just like, my God, we were like 22-year-old little fanboys, just like fanboying out. And you know what? I don't think he was even there. I think it was, <laughs> that's just like, but that's the thing. You you said early in the interview, it's like when 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 you're starting out, everything is new and exciting. And the idea of you being, you know, 2,000, 3,000 miles from home, seeing this band that played your hometown, you think of them as this like ultimate massive national touring band. And the reality is, is like, you know, they're maybe not even that much, obviously I have to drive a different story, but like, they're probably not even that much different than you are because now you're going out there and like, oh, anybody can do this. And I think that's the beauty of, of, you know, if you want to start out and be in a band and you want to, try to figure things out you actually can like you know we you we didn't have any money at this point just because we were signed to drive through didn't mean any money we, we just tried to you know figure out what and how we could do and i think our van broke down at least twice and the first time pretty badly on the way out there you just figure it out and then like yeah. what, like uh when you guys did start touring uh for save the world i mean were you guys mostly going out like opening supporting bands or were you doing any like headliners at, at that time Save um, the world. Save the world. When we would tour on that, we did a lot of stuff with um well Our we did that drive through tour with the RX Bandits and the Found Glory. We did that and we would just play a lot of shows with um our contemporaries. You know, we played with like Cooter a lot. Remember they were Cooter back then? The term is yeah. Uh we we would play with other New Jersey bands who ha- were a little bit more seasoned than us, like uh Catch Twenty Two would take us out. Um we play shows with Big Wig. Um, but as far as like tours, it was really just Newfound Glory. <laughs> we played with them a lot. <laughs> we yeah. played with them a lot, a lot. So and also at the time Gabe's brother was booking shows in New Jersey. Uh, Ricky had bomb shelter, so any good show that would come to New Jersey, we would hop on the bill. 
and uh, we got to play some pretty amazing shows then. We did an Elks Lodge. The the bill, I, I don't remember who the fourth or fifth bands were, but it was us at the drive-in and the Get Up Kids. Oh, nice. Like, nice lineup. That uh-huh. was cool. Yeah, that was a cool bill. And that was at like a little 500 capacity venue. Um, yeah. By my house in New Jersey. Like, how, how does this happen? I have no idea how this shit used to happen. No. Do you guys have uh, either of you have a favorite song off Save the World to play live? Like when you when you guys were playing in Midtown, what was your favorite song off that record to play live? Uh, I I think mine was New It All Along. I always really liked playing that song. I had a lot of fun playing Let Go, but I think the other three guys got a little too cool to allow us to play that song live later later in uh, Midtown's existence because it was a little. <laughs> Poppier, and um, I don't know if if you remember, but uh, that song, uh, we met this guy uh, Kevin Kasatsu, and he was friendly with the people that did the Real World, the Buna Murray people that did Real World Road Rules Challenge, and I think I think Kevin, if I'm not mistaken, was the one um, who helped us be able to. Um, have let go be the theme song for the real world road rules challenge too which was absolutely insane but it was just a fun song for me to play because it's it's just like it's very like like poppy on the snare and just like it's just like it has like a groove to it so i, I really enjoyed that one um but that that guy kevin i now he uh he i think he manages diplo so and uh <laughs> wow he's he, he's absolutely slaying it yeah that's pretty cool um you know yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, man. No, I was going to say another ironic story is um, that same guy, um, Kevin Kasatsu, who manages Diplo among a million other DJs and and artists. And I think he signed Adele in the U.S. as well, by the way, which is crazy. What? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He designed the Midtown Tree logo. We bought that design. He was a graphic (laughs) designer as a side hustle while he was working at Vagrant Records before he was managing bands or, or working at Columbia signing fucking Adele. So he did a lot of the Midtown's initial t-shirt designs, that same guy. Oh, that is rad. That is really cool. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, Rob. That's very interesting. Yeah, that was that was Kasatsu's shirt, the tree. That was like your biggest, I feel like that's like one of the most popular shirts too. I know exactly the yeah. one you're talking about. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Diplo Dylan Francis. All <laughs> And then, you know, I mean, like like we've kind of talked about, I mean, obviously there was some pressure recording the first record, but kind of, kind of more, it sounds like the stress of never doing it before and it kind of being new to you guys. But I mean, when you, when you look back, because I know the the next two records ended up being on like majors and I'm sure you were getting more attention as a band. Was there more pressure going in to record the later records than there was on a save the world, lose the girl? Not for me. No. Yeah. Each record we did, I had more fun in the studio each time, by far, every record. Right. I feel the same way. I feel like this one, we had a lot of pressure on us because we'd never done anything on that scale before. And that was really the only pressure that we faced. I feel like every time that we were in the studio, we were pretty much left alone by the record labels. Well, that's always you know, they, nice. You don't always get that either. Yeah, we didn't well, have a record label for the last record. So. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
so save the world, lose the girl. I think the people that gave us the most trouble, but that's because they cared the most in a, in a positive way. Because I have a little record label as well now, and I would do the, I do the same with my artists. It probably drives them crazy. Um, but Richard and Stephanie, I think, probably came in and had more opinions than the major label on our first album. I mean, on 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 our second album, Living Well, or uh, and then on our third album, we didn't have a label. So like, and part of the funny thing is on on our second album, Living Well, is like. We were basically upstreamed to uh, MCA Records from Drive Through. So be- because we were upstreamed, they kind of just took us. They didn't have to fight for us. They didn't have to do any of these like, you know, things that bands usually have when they sign to a major label. Like the you know the president comes in, the A and R person's there. You know, you have the marketing team and the product managers and the radio team and promotions team all like you know, talking you up because they want you to sign to their label. So with with MCA, it was kind of like there was this one guy, Gary Ashley. He just did all the drive through bands. And he also happened to have done, or at the time, he was doing Blink-182 and fucking Shaggy. And if <laughs> yes. you, but hold on. 2001 Shaggy? 2001? Oh, shit's huge then. Like, Huge is an understatement. Since that Shaggy album with It Wasn't Me and Angel, you know, Mr. Lover Lover, all that stuff. By the way, I can say this because ironically, 15 years later, I ended up managing Shaggy. So it's just, it's, it's, it's like, that's why I know so much about Shaggy. But he, 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 he was the only person other than Adele since 2000 to sell 10 million albums, which is absolutely insane. My point by saying that. And it was that album, an MCA in 2001, is why is our A&R guy even going to care about us, right? This guy, Gary Ashley, he's got Shaggy, he's got Blink, he's got Newfound, he's got, and I know this sounds silly, but like even like Phoenix TX or River Phoenix or whatever, like, like what's Midtown, right? So we're kind of just like in the studio. And I think we had uh, our product manager, Paul or somebody come out uh, while we're doing Living Well and like, like once we're like, oh my God, it seems like the record label kind of cares because our A&R guy, A&R guy was never there. So, you know, but yeah, so that's just like to say Heath was like, they just kind of left us alone. It's kind of what it was like. They kind of just went with the flow and assumed everything that came out of drive through would be a massive hit. So that upstream then, I mean, cause I, I, I've, I've heard that before and I know, I know some drive through bands got upstreamed kind of without even like wanting to, I mean, did you guys want to be upstreamed or is that kind of like you, you didn't really have a say in it? Did we have a say, Heath? We would have done it, but did we have a say? Uh, I don't think we had a say, but we wanted to be the biggest band in the world. So, I mean, you know, if you're giving us a choice to record an album on a major label, we're going to take it. You know, so that that's kind of how we felt about it. We thought that there would be more opportunities with the major label. And, um, you know, so when when it came time to do the second record and that was on the table, we saw a lot of promise with that and possibilities. Well, we were also barking with drive through at that point. We had started like, you know, going back and forth with them. Uh, and honestly, I couldn't even tell you. It's all like in my mind, I just, I either blacked it out or I, or I just don't care and remember. But so I think, I think for us, we wanted some separation as well. So we could feel like we were moving forward and not, and not being like, you know, stuck in mud or something like that. Uh, no, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like too, I'm sure that opened up a bunch of doors for you too on the second record. I mean, that's, 
it's nice to have that support, including if they're leaving you alone, because that's that's the thing. Not everyone always gets that. So I mean, if they're if they're supportive and kind of letting you do it, that's uh, yeah, that's not a bad situation to be in. I'll tell you this much: um, we had a manager on Living Well. <laughs> um, I'm not talking about Jillian. Jillian's uh, she's fucking great. But uh, there was this at the company. There was a, there was two other owners of the company where she managed. And I was just like, in terms of having direction of, of where our career should have went, they were fighting to have like our ninth track on the album called in the songs as the single. And it was just like, even like me back then, I was like, wait a second. I don't see where you're coming from that. You want to fight the label to say, this is the single and this is the song we should push. Do you remember that Heath that they wanted in the song? I don't, but man, maybe they were right. That you think that could, should have been a single? <laughs> I mean, the one that we put out didn't work, so maybe. <laughs> that song was like about about sleeping on hardwood floors while we were touring. That's literally. Yeah. I'm not sure how that relates to the mass of America. I actively like. fought to get that out to get that song off of the record. So, <laughs> oh, and then they wanted it as a single. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, that is fun. That's funny. So then you guys, obviously, you know, Midtown did break up in 2005. And then back, I was going to say a few years, but I mean, at this point, it's been about six years. But you'd play those three shows in uh, 2014. I caught I caught the two skate and surf sets. And uh, I mean, not not being able to see you guys the first time around. I, I discovered you guys well after you broke up. But I thought you guys sounded really good. You sounded really tight. I mean, when you when you were rehearsing for those shows, did you click right away? Did that take time to kind of find the groove again? I mean, I know that was quite a bit of time in between there. What, almost a decade since you'd all played together? Yeah, it was like seven. No, yeah, it was nine years. Nine, nine years since we broke up. Um, we spent a, a lot of time. Yeah, well, you know, your your task was the most physical, you know. So, but but we we worked on not only playing but also just hanging out and being together uh, and trying to become closer as friends during that process we practiced every sunday for five five months like four we were so lucky yeah we were lucky our friend had a studio in brooklyn and he was like no one's here on sundays just i'll open it up for you i'll hook you up put you through the the board we'll record it you'll hear everything in your monitors and just Take as long as you need. We were there like six to eight hours every Sunday. Oh, wow. It was great. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, the beauty of doing a reunion show, and, and I wonder if other bands feel the same way, is that when you're in a band, like if Heath says something dumb on stage while, you're, like, while your band is going and it's your full-time career, if he says something dumb, some fan might come up to me after the show and be like, hey, like, why, did you, why did your band say that? That's like totally uncool. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I didn't say it. It was Heath, right? So, um, but the fact is that, you know, you're a band. Anything one band member does affects everybody else in the band. So they Mm -hmm. feel like it's potentially impeding their future because it reflects upon them if it's negative. Or if, you know, if I fuck up on drums or Gabe messes a lyric or a bass thing, it's like other band members might take offense to it while you're in the band because it's affecting their futures, right? But when you go and do a reunion show, you've all got your jobs, you've all got your futures, it's only fun. 
nothing else matters. If you mess up, it doesn't matter. If you're out of key, it doesn't matter. Like you're, it's not about money. It's just about, you know, the enjoyment of the moment. And like, that's why, like, I know people say it's like corny with these like dads that are in these cover bands or these beer bands, like whatever it is. But like, they're definitely not, at least I hope they're not trying to do it as a career, but like, it's fun. Like, like it's, it's what made music special when you first started. And that's why I completely um, celebrate the idea of bands doing these reunion shows, um, especially if like they're at a different place in their life where they, you know, they, they can really just truly enjoy it for, for what it is and nothing more. No, that that's cool. And I mean, I, I, you guys seem to be having fun up there. I mean, watching it, you guys seem to be having fun and, like I said, I mean, everything sounded tight and stuff, which makes sense now. Cause yeah, that's, that's like really rehearsing. That's some really good. Uh, it sounded like you guys had some time to work out kinks and everything. So then personally, I mean, did you guys felt like the shows went well then both of you were like happy with the outcome? Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought they went, they went really well. Um, you know, the, my favorite of the three was the one that we played in Brooklyn, uh, as like the secret show just because it didn't matter. You know, the, the only people that were there were people who had been with us like the whole time. You know, we saw, I saw so many people that night that I remember coming to our earliest shows at, in the man at the Manville Elks Lodge in 1998, 99, you know, people were texting me like, Hey, I just got out of work. I work in Brooklyn. I just found out you're playing the show. Is there any way that we can, that I can come by and we would just put anybody who texted us on the guest list. And it was just all old people, <laughs> you know, people yeah, that, that honestly, were like involved. It was great. Yeah. So that show was at the knitting factory. We did it under um, a pseudonym name, like a fake band name called Merman. So when we did the deal um, to do the two shows in Jersey for surf and skate, part of it was we told them we, we, we needed to do a secret show in Brooklyn at a small venue. Um, so we did it at knitting factory, which holds maybe 200 people. Obviously we figured out ways to sneak in far more than 200 people into it. Um, that, that were our friends, but like, honestly, I think that was one of my favorite shows we ever did as Midtown, like ever, because like, if you would look into the crowd, it, it was just like people either that were familiar or that were your friends, but everybody was smiling the entire set in the crowd it was like it was a party it was a celebration it was such a good time for all of us like myself included who thought this would never happen again this could never happen again so it it it, it really it, it, i think we we blew our load heat <laughs> doing mm-hmm. that doing that show first and yeah. then going and doing uh, skate and surf over two days um you know, I think I think that's kind of sort of what happened. But the thing about skate and surf, which was so cool, is that um, we were able to have, you know, some family members like my nieces were able to come out to that show, which was super cool and be on stage. You know, they were basically infants, um, you know, at the time that Midtown was still touring. So there was a lot of other reasons that, that made that special as well. No, that, that's really rad. Um kind of just coming to present day now, you know, like, like Heath for you, do you still play much guitar at all? I mean, you got, I, as far as I know, you don't, you're not like playing a band right now, but I mean, do you still play much guitar or anything? I do now. Um, I didn't for a very long time. So 
after Midtown broke up, I played in Sense of Scale for four years. Um, and then when I quit Sense of Scale in 2009, I didn't really play much guitar after that at all. Um, and then I had my, my daughter was born in 2012. And when she was born, I was like, you know, I'm going to play guitar to her and make her calm and she'll be like very relaxed when I'm playing. We'll like enjoy this time together. And she was not into it at all. Um, so she would like yell at me and tell me to put the guitar away and it was too loud. And um, she just didn't like the way it sounded. So I didn't play guitar then until we played the Midtown shows in 2014. Um, and then my son came along in 2016 and he was drawn to guitar right away. Um, and so I started playing for him and then I started kind of getting back into it and remembering how much I enjoyed playing guitar. And, and I, I've been playing more the past three weeks than I have in, in years. Um, you know, I've just been trying to like learn songs and, kind of mess around i've been at home a lot more recently uh so that's been it's been definitely helping this is like my kind of my self-care is is playing guitar again so so this is real interesting um i think it has a lot to do with the whole um you know covid stuff that's happening right now with, with you playing guitar heath but uh we had this i guess you'd call him a roadie was dave st louis dave a roadie what, what was he to midtown heath well, Dave was just, Dave was our friend and we, first time we went, we played through St. Louis. I think we played with one of his bands. I think he was in a band at the time called Too Young the Hero or Dig Dug. He was in those two bands. Mm -hmm. So we played with his bands. We stayed with him uh, that night. We used to crash with people on tour. We stayed with Dave and I think we showed up at his, his condo and he handed us guns. And he was Jesus like, Christ. he wanted to shoot some stuff. What <laughs> a moron. Like, they were bb guns or pellet guns and we just started shooting everything in his apartment he, he did not give a shit um so we were just we were just buddies with dave from from then on what i was going to say about about that heath was that so so this guy dave that that heath is talking about because like, i'm seeing it on your youtube and your facebook and his facebook and all that uh, uh instagram and, and facebook uh dude's got a good voice i had no idea Definitely yeah, he's, he's like, a good what? singer, man. Yeah. He's, Wait, actually, yeah. I did just see a Hot Water Music cover you put up. Is that the guy singing in it? Yeah, yeah. That's oh, Dave, he sounded Dave. he he had that. I which Hot Water Music. I don't think it's a very easy band to cover. He had he had no. that down really well. Yeah. Chuck Reagan's yeah, not an easy it, one to emulate like that. He did a really good job. Yeah, we yeah. we went to Dave's house once in St. Louis, and if if I recall correctly. This guy, and you can fact check me on this, Heath. I want to say he had like 700 empty cans of Coke lined all around his entire apartment. Is this possible, Heath? That's possible. 700 <laughs> empty cans of Coke. Possible. Maybe that's what we were shooting with the pellet guns. That would make a lot of sense. And I feel like he, he might have also been my first Del Taco experience. Is that possible too? St. Entirely Louis. possible. Yeah. Entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. He's gonna he's gonna have such an ego after listening to this <laughs> this interview. Don't but tell him about it. I think he used to. <laughs> I think I think he broke my glasses once. He did. I yeah. Thi I think I was so mad I made him cry. Oh no! Uh, but I, I would I would never want to make anybody cry. But I think to this day he still brings that up. 
But, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I I think, think yeah. You, you bummed him out. I bummed him out and made him real uh, yeah. scared of me, but, you know, <laughs> I didn't have contacts at that point, so I had no other way to see. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah, since. The past, the past week or so, Dave and I have been uh, kind of collaborating on these on these covers of songs from the early 2000s. We'll kind of come up with a couple at night. Yeah. During the day, I'll learn them, and then I'll just I'll record them and send them over to him. He records his vocals and puts them up, and, uh, and that's it. It's just... You know, Heath, if Just you were smart, you'd, you'd be doing this on TikTok, not on damn Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> but is, isn't there a time limit on TikTok? Uh, I don't know. I'm in my 40s. Yeah, yeah, same here. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I've never used it, so I can't answer that one. I know what it is. I've never used it. But, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you too, Heath, because you mentioned you weren't, you didn't play guitar there for a couple years. And then when it, when it came time to do the Midtown stuff, I mean, when you pick the guitar back up after not playing for that long... Do you still have some muscle memory? Or, I mean, do you almost have to reteach yourself guitar altogether? I mean, like, how much do you retain in that time from uh, not playing? I always think that's interesting when you take time off like that and then get back to it. You lose the details. You still have, like, all the gross motor, uh, but but you lose the details. Um, you lose, like, the little, like, what was that little run I did there? How did I play this with my right hand? What, what was the rhythm like? What was the chord shape like? You have to kind of go back and, and find those little things and fine tune. But um, but for me, it was it, the hardest part was remembering the songs because I didn't listen to them for years. You know, I mean, I just I I didn't I hadn't heard the song come on in ten years before we started playing, um, and I had to go back and and listen to those again. And the real hard part was that. You know, when we were a touring band, we would kind of change things up live. We'd add little parts here and there. We would, you know, tweak a pre-chorus, tweak a chorus. Uh, the harmonies would be a little bit different. Tyler and I, our interplay would be different. Um, and there were no videos because we broke up before YouTube was around. So there were like no live videos of us playing, <laughs> it to, you know, to kind of study off of. Yeah. So. I mean, I'll say this much. Um I I mean, if I recall correctly, when we went back to those reunion shows in 2014, um, I feel like every time we rehearsed, I'd get like a quarter of the way through every song and be like, I'm sorry, I can't remember this. I need to go like then I had to pull up um, Spotify and like pull up our albums and listen to the song yeah. like through the, the microphones in the room um, so I could play through the speakers to remember the parts. And then, mm-hmm. ironically, I was pretty shocked. I happened to have played drums a few, like literally the week before the whole, you know, this this whole COVID stuff happened. Um, I literally had played drums for the first time since those shows. Oh, wow. And I was like, and I was playing those songs. I was like, I don't understand how I can get through most of these in its entirety today. But in 2014, maybe maybe I blocked it all out from Midtown's breakup to 2014, <laughs> and I would I wouldn't let myself remember it. And then, you know, I, I think when the pressure's off, it's a whole different story. And you know, now, like I said before, now it's just fun, so it's cool. So then, you know, and I was going to ask you that too. I guess it kind of answers it. I mean, I know, I know you run uh, I Surrender Records, really rad record label there. And then, as far as drumming goes, then you really then hadn't played that. What would that have been? Six? You didn't play for like six years then? Am I correct? Um, yeah, that would be about six. Yeah, it was. Yeah, totally wow. was six years because those shows were April, May of 2014, and now we're in March. So yeah, just about. 
And and then before that, I mean, had you not really been playing drums before the reunion either? Um, No, not at all. Not at all. I did. So I was managing bands at that point um, in time. So with the bands I was managing, you know, maybe for a second or two, like I'd get behind, you know, one of their kits as they were like doing sound check or whatever. But then after Midtown, then that was basically, that was kind of the last time you played drums then like kind of full time in a band. Without a doubt. Yeah. Oh, wait, here's a funny story. Um, he, I know you've, you've heard one of my other pod, podcasts. I don't, I don't even know if I brought this up, but after Midtown broke up, um, uh, we were managed at that time, we were managed by Crush Music and uh, Jonathan Daniel from Crush was friends with this guy, Sam and Dave, Dave Katz, Sam Hollander. And they were kind of putting together this band called Boys Like Girls. Do you recall this band? <laughs> Remember that band? Yeah, they, yeah, they had a big. huge song. So, wow, this is blow my mind if you don't even know this, Heath. So, when Boy, yeah, that, that huge song, when they were showcasing for record labels, well, they couldn't just, this was still back then. This was still 06, right? So this isn't like the the viral charts on Spotify or whatever, where people will just pluck a band and sign them and do a singles deal. This was, you. the, the A&R person had to see the band live. So right after Midtown ended, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do in life. So Jonathan's like, well, what do you think of this band? Like, you want to work with them? And I'm like, yeah, let me let me give it a shot. The song because I heard the songs first, and I was like, "Oh, that song's awesome." Um, it feels big, at least you know. I thought that that was like a really strong song. So I went in and I did all the uh, showcases for the major labels for the bands as the drummer. And then, like when it got a little sooner, Martin the singer asked me to be in the band, which was totally cool of him. But I was kind of like, "Wait a second, like I'm living in Brooklyn, like." I'm not living in Jersey. I don't have a garage. I don't have a basement where I can go practice every day. I'm like, I'm probably better on the business side of music than I was as a drummer. I should probably let this go and, you know, see, see what it's like on the other side at this point. So um, I didn't actually end up doing boys like girls, but I was the first drummer. Wow. That, yeah. I, that is crazy. I had no clue you played yeah. with them. Yeah. I forget it too. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and then when did you start doing I surrender? I mean, you've been, you've been at that for a while, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, um, I definitely started, uh, I surrender in Oh three while we were doing midtown. Basically what happened was, is, um, in the, in the mid late nineties, uh, at least in my town in, in Jersey, I remember everybody like, Everybody wanted to have a record label, and every and, and I was I did too. Like literally in in high school, I wanted to have a record label. But I re, I remember that everybody would be like, okay, I'm going to put out a compilation CD, going to sell it for five or eight bucks, but it's just going to be the same compilation songs that are on every other compilation. Because what used to happen is if you had a record label, you would and you had an artist, you would basically just give the same song out to any other little record label that wanted to have a compilation CD and other labels were happy to just give it to them because at that point in time, that was promotion. There was no Spotify. There was no Apple music or even iTunes at that point. So the only way you could, a band could get bigger is by getting heard on a compilation or getting a dub cassette or, uh, uh, you know, a recorded vinyl, um, cd from a friend so that it, what labels used to feel was giving out a song for a compilation to another label was kind of like marketing getting the bands known so then hopefully 
that person would come and buy the entire CD because they heard it on a compilation. So that's the, the label's return for giving away a free song. But I was kind of like, I don't want to be one of those people that just put out another compilation with all of the exact same, you know, 15 songs. Uh, and besides the fact that I had no money in high school anyway, so I don't know how I would have pressed it. But that being said, it's kind of like 2003, because I, I, I had felt I always wanted to do a label. I got this, uh, my friend Laura sent me a demo, um, five songs from this guy, uh, Greg, who's at a, from West Virginia, was in a band called Time and Distance. And I'm like, this is it. Like, I know this is just acoustic, but there's something there with this one song. This has got to be my go time. Maybe I don't have a lot of money, but maybe I can put them on a few Midtown shows or help them out in any way I can, especially because at that point, like the internet and social media, we'll call it MySpace or Friendster, whatever it was. But, like things were starting to happen that maybe I could help this guy out. So I'm not just like, you know, begging somebody. Like we're able to help each other out. And uh, that's how it happened in 2003 that um, started started to, uh, to to start the record label and get that on its way. Nice. And, you know, you, you brought up something. I like talking to bands kind of from your era. When you bring up comps, I mean, I feel like there was a time when comps could do a lot for a band. I mean, did mid, do you feel like Midtown got that at all? Like, were comps, did comps help you guys at all? Or was that wave kind of over by the time you guys started doing it? We missed comps a little bit, but the one thing we had was drive throughs samplers. Oh, those were huge. Um, Yes. So we were in the next wave, which was post comps, which was when record labels put out these samplers of, um, you know, bands on their record label. And we had one in particular that was two songs from us and two songs from Newfound Glory. And I still people today is like, that's how they first heard us. Is that you'll never eat fast food again? Because that's my all time favorite like <laughs> compilation. I think that was like a full band compilation with like a ton of their artists. So, uh, no, but this was just literally two songs from Midtown and two songs from Oh, okay. Uh, I, see what Glory. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, wow. Sampler. Oh, yeah. nice. What else? Was there any other samplers or comps, Heath, that we were on other than like later on with the Spider-Man soundtrack or whatever that, that helped us? No. No, we were, like you said, we our, our, our first bands were on a lot, of comp, a lot of comps, but by the time Midtown came around, you know, we were a little bit more... Um, possessive of our songs we didn't really want to give them out too much you know so we wanted people to, to have our full records we didn't want to just have them pick up a song here and there from the different comps that makes sense by the way you've both been an inspiration i'm literally holding drumsticks right now oh no nice. <laughs> swear to god yeah now, and mean, they're the same drumsticks i've had since oh five like i still oh have god. a few bricks left yeah yeah you got it now's the time to do it yeah now now's a good time to be playing I didn't say anything about that. I just said oh, I'm holding well, two drums. Well, you're right holding. Now. Them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for uh, for I surrender. I mean, I know you did put out "Forget What You Know" back in the uh, 10th anniversary. I mean, would you do you ever see you doing that for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the catalog at all for Midtown? So, um, the what happened was is uh, drive through or MCA have their in-house like legacy department. And I think there was, you know, somebody working there that was a, a fan or saw some kind of nostalgia. Uh, and they actually released Save the World and Living Well uh, on, through Universal because the drive through and MCA were both through Universal. We had no say in any of that. 
um, that wasn't on our clock even. We were actually kind of pissed off when we saw it because we're like, we would have liked to have known before like all this marketing and stuff was going out on it randomly 10 years ago. Um, so after, you know, once I had on, like, I can't let this happen again. So I reached out to, uh, Columbia records and I figured out to find the right person. And I'm like, you know what, if anybody should be releasing our music that has the right to and the ability to, it should be us. So we can have control over it. So a few things that we did is I got the rights back to, um, our first EP, the one that had, you know, direction and come on, on it. And, uh, so now I'm re-releasing that to, I surrender. And it's the only record now that we've ever had that we're seeing royalties that I pay out every year to uh, to our bank accounts. So so that's that's like one thing uh, like that I was really happy we were able to do that. Yeah, literally the only thing. And then uh, I was able to get the rights to doing the the, the double vinyl of Living um, uh, Forget What You Know that we we sold um, uh, at in New Jersey. Except not enough people buy vinyl that that the record label makes money on that one. So. <laughs> We'll, we'll leave that one in the past for now. <laughs> well, yeah. I, either either way, I'm happy you pressed it. And I, I, it sucks. I didn't realize you guys didn't really have a say in those other two. Because I know the pressings you're, talk, you're talking about, I, I picked those up. Yeah. And I got to say, the one you did was much, much better. I, I think the the uh, even even like the cover and all of that, there seemed to be more quality to yours, maybe a little more time put in. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of a bummer to hear that, and including the royalties thing that – that that's the only one you're really getting them on that that sucks to uh you know 36 bucks a year i pay out to a midtown band llc it's fine <laughs> nice <laughs> so um, no but uh i think yeah with, with 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 the vinyl and everything it's um you know it's it's, it's i don't think that's that's anything negative or be bummed about that's just more of like you know you it's nice to see that it's even out there if it's making anybody happy and leave it at that, you know. That's fair enough. That's definitely fair with that. And you know, as, as we're kind of closing up here, and you guys look back at "Save the World, Lose the Girl." I mean, obviously, we're talking twenty years now. Twenty years later, how do you guys feel about the album? I mean, where would it sit for both of you as far as the three records you put out went? Ooh, that's a good question. I think that it's probably my number two. I think this is my number two. What about you, Rob? You know, I've felt this way a long time that I pluck songs out. It, it, it wouldn't be an album as a whole. I pluck songs out. I think in terms of an experience, the process of making living well, I'll say this, the process of making living well was the most special for me. Um, the most fun I had recording was with Butch Walker on Forget What You Know, but but the best experience was definitely Living Well because for me, that was truly the album where everything felt like maybe this could be something extraordinarily special, right? When we went and we did Save the World, it was more like the process of this in general on its own of making the album is special on living well it was like oh my god the excitement of what could the future be and then on forget what you know and making that album that was the most um just enjoyable process because we didn't have a record label and we could just 
enjoy it for what it was and enjoy each other and be in the studio and, 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 and have fun with the actual, you know, music and not all the other stuff that comes along with it, like the, the labels and the A&R person in the future and the, you know, the pressure. So yeah. that's kind of uh, the pressure was off on, on forget what you know. And then Heath, then you, you said that would probably be your second favorite. What was your favorite one then? My favorite was probably forget what you know. Forget what you know. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and like Rob said, a lot of it came down to the fact of that we didn't know what was going to happen with that one. Um, you know, I didn't even know if it would come out. We had no idea. We didn't have anyone attached to it. So, uh, and also, I was a huge, huge fan of Bush Walker. I loved his music. I loved his solo music. I loved the Marvelous Three, uh, and uh, I was really, really excited to work with him. Um, kind of coming in, knowing a thing or two about recording um, from the previous experiences with Mark. Uh, I really learned a lot working with Mark. So um, I was just eager to get in there with Butch and see what, what Butch's angle on the whole thing would be. Would you would you say that was Butch on there? Because I feel like, forget what you know, like, I, I feel like there's times you guys experiment or do things that you may not have on the on the first two records. I mean, was that... Do you feel like part of that was Butch or do you also feel like maybe that was it's your third record and you're a little more comfortable in the studio to kind of screw around and like, you know, do do things a little differently there? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we came into that record knowing exactly what we would play for every piece, of, of, especially with the guitars. There was a lot of guitar interplay and Tyler and I recorded together you know he was on the left side of the room i was on the right side of the room we were just looking at each other and playing our parts together we didn't really have many overdubs um we were super prepared for that record um but butch butch added a lot of uh, little sprinkles of uh of fun on top of everything he was way into uh the delays and he had uh he had the line six plugins that he was always messing with and um he added some pianos and, and Wurlitzers here and there. He played a couple of little guitar tracks. Um, he was really involved in in every aspect of that record. By by that record, was it all digital at that point? I mean, you, were you guys were you guys doing any like I, like Rob? I know you said you did some uh, you recorded some of that on tape on Save the World and then brought it over. I mean, was it all digital by '04? I think it was all digital by then. Yeah, I don't think we did any tape for that record. Well, you know, as we're closing up here, I mean, it's been a lot of fun talking about this record. Um, you know, like, where can people find you guys online? I mean, like like you said, Robin, you got I Surrender Records and stuff. You got a few things going on. You know, where can people go find that? And and really also, as far as I Surrender goes, you have anything, like, upcoming for that you want to talk about? Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, we still have our Midtown Instagram um we'll have it we didn't have there was no instagram when we were <laughs> <laughs> but uh we still have like the url midtownrock.com we're midtown nj on instagram um i was able to right when twitter came out in 08 i was able to get midtown so on, on on twitter so twitter so that's a pretty fun one to have because sometimes it's hard to get those vanity urls on socials and things like that but um I still have the label. It's going great. It's really ironic right now that you, you ask because um, uh, in all of my 20 plus years of being in music, I've never worked with an artist or a band that ever had a song a hundred percent completely organically go viral. So 
uh, a few years ago, I, I have this little record label, I Surrender Records, uh, you know, with, with my friends Gabby and Alex, uh, Alex Sardi and Gabby Fainsilber. And um, we signed this band a few years ago. His name is Lincoln. He lives out in, uh, near Cincinnati in, in, in Kentucky. Um, and he, had the, he has a song called St. Bernard. It's, it's, it's one of the cool songs like you'll hear. It's totally a weird song, but it is really special. Somehow, some like community on TikTok, and we can't figure out like exactly where Ground Zero was of how and where it started to happen, but we think it was like, like some sort of furry community and then some kind of like gothy community of like, you know, My Chemical Romance-ish looking kids, but with like, you know, like the Japanese cartoons where they kind of dress like that and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. And then, all, and then it started to like just resonate with like some other people on TikTok, and then people started like covering it on TikTok for their six seconds and doing these weird videos. And some of these videos started getting like over a million plays in 24 hours. Oh wow! And liter- literally, it's all just doing it on its own yesterday on spotify for the song saint bernard by lincoln it had seventy thousand streams yesterday on spotify Holy like shit. like that's bigger than anything i've ever done on i surrender or i've ever done anything on with midtown which is the craziest thing to me. we still don't exactly know why it's happening but i guess people just really like the song so that's been really fun with i surrender to have the biggest thing we've ever had is going on right now uh unsuspectingly after all these years um we signed this awesome punk band for, uh, called Steve. They're from uh, they're from New Jersey, Central New Jersey, uh, right where near where where you know basically Midtown started. Like you know they're they're uh, like Lawrenceville area. Uh, they went to Rutgers. They're from New Brunswick. They had a scene in Philly. They played Brooklyn all the time. And they're called Steve. Um, uh, they have an EP out called uh, "You Can Do This Too." Um, so, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm really excited about right now. And we're actually signing another band um, as well, which I can't say yet, but we will be doing. Um, but yes, yeah, so I Surrender has been really fun. And um, the only other thing in my life that's even more ridiculous than I think anything I've ever done before is uh, I do have this Twitter, Instagram and Facebook account um, on Instagram. that's called Bodega Cats of Instagram. Um, and you can just google it you can find the twitter or whatever any of it anywhere but uh basically i've lived in brooklyn since 2002 for the last 18 years and you'll find cats in the local corner stores also known as bodegas and um the owners of the stores will keep these cats because they'd rather uh, get a fine for having a cat than a fine for mice rats or cockroaches (laughs) you know from the health inspectors so you know, I was in one in like, you know, 2012 or 2013 and I saw one, I started posting on Instagram and then I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to create an account because I don't want to post these on my personal Instagram. Um, and the, and the Instagram has uh, like 240,000 followers and the, um, the, the Twitter has 340,000 followers <laughs> of people just sending me these crazy cats and I just repost them. And what I was able to do with that is um, basically uh, start a web store. And, um, you know, uh, for, uh, and then it's like t-shirts and sweatshirts and crew necks and hoodies and whatever of, uh, that just say bodega cats with like a cool design on it and, um, take the profits from all of those shirts 
and give it to uh, local animal organizations um, that will either help get, uh, you know, feral community and bodega cats fixed, or, um, you know, if they're injured, uh, if the community cat or the feral cat's injured, um, you know, you take them to the vet and help fix them up. Or if, uh, you know, in, in any of the, it's called TNR, trap neuter return, which is basically taking these feral cats, these community cats, um, get them fixed, uh, get them to the vets. But while you're rehabilitating them, if they end up being friendlies, like friendly cats, then they, there's organizations that will then do that and then put them up for adoption. So um, I've been able to take the money from there um, and not only um, help donate to organizations uh, like that, there's one called Flatbush Cats, that's really great, but also be able to, um, uh, you know, help with social posting um, for these organizations as well to help, to help bring attention to the positive cause for it. So something that I totally didn't expect, um, but I figured through being in music and, and, and playing in bands, it was important. You know, I felt that if I can, you know, take a platform, because when you're in a band, you're in a, a platform of influence uh, and do the same thing with this, having all the followers, let me figure out a way to use it towards a positive cause. And that even goes back to the feelings I had with Midtown, which is why, you know, we did a tour called the Rock Against Bush tour. And, you know, that was with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine and Anti-Flag and, and those bands. And it was because we wanted to do something uh, to hopefully make a difference and impact a difference. And that's why, you know, I still remember whether it was like, you know, bands, uh, you know, like Propagandi or, you know, some of the things, you know, I learned about from listening to bands like Gorilla Biscuits or Minor Threat to take that with me to use, you know, your your music and influence or your social, um, you know, what you have on socials and use that and try to figure out positive ways to, you know, to direct that energy. So, um, you know, that's something else in my life that I've been working on that that's been pretty, uh, pretty enlightening and pretty cool for me. That's really cool. Uh, you want to give that out one more time where people can get the shirts? I mean, that's a, that's a great cause. That's really cool. You do that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, just bodegacats.nyc, um, and if you click the blog link, you'll even be able to see some music related stuff um, that I that I've done and talked about it as well. That's cool. And actually, I had heard of Bodega Cats, and until like I don't know two hours ago, I did not realize that was ran by you. So I mean that definitely has nobody some outreach. does. Yeah, I did. Nobody does. I my did not know like, that. <laughs> like, twenty-two of my friends are following it already. How did I not know this was you? That's what I get all the time. <laughs> no, that's really cool. Um, like yeah. Heath, for you, I mean, any anywhere online, you want people to uh, find you or anything like that? No, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really do anything. What no. about your your videos with Dave? Oh yeah, what about that? You want to plug that? Those are really good. That guy, I have to go check out the rest, but he did a damn good Chuck Reagan. That that was really not an easy band to cover. Dave is is a very talented singer. Let me see if I can find his Instagram here. Plus, I should also be crediting you. Like you also sound great. Forget me not. Wait, um, have you done that one, or is that a request? Yeah, no, we did we did like ten songs this past week. Oh, nice. um, and Holly Hawks was one of them too. I think that was the first one. Um, so yeah, they're all on Dave's Instagram and uh, YouTube channel. You can look him up. It's David R O W D I E, and it's just uh, me and Dave playing songs from the early two thousands. Very nice. No people, people should go check that out. Check out Bodega Cats, I Surrender, all that stuff. It's uh, it's cool to see to see that you guys are doing a couple things here. 
So, uh, no, this is this has been a lot of fun. I hope people enjoy hearing this. And we're going to play a couple songs off Save the World, Lose the Girl. And uh, we're going to open it right now with one of my all-time favorite album openers. And it's funny now to hear that this was almost not even an album opener, which is crazy because I truly think, like, the energy of it, what a way to kick off a record. So I'm very, very happy they listened to you. And uh, right now on the Power Chord Hour, here's Just Rock and Roll. God, I wish I could hate you for the rest of my...
sight and sound And his lines were said and no one speaks A word of his lust
right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast. That was Midtown with No Place Feels Like Home. Before that was Midtown with Another Boy and opening up that block of music, one of my all-time favorite album openers. Once again, Midtown with Just Rock and Roll. I want to thank Heath and Rob once again for doing that. That was so much fun. Go check them out. You know, Rob has Bodega Cats. He has I Surrender Records. Go check those out. I Surrender has a really good roster. Go check out what they've done and uh, go pick up that Forget What You Know vinyl from him. And also go check out from Heath. You know, they did just announce that actually Heath is going to be playing a uh, Quarantunes Volume 2. This is really cool. I I, I totally forgot to promote the uh, first one they did a few weeks back. But over on the North Jersey Pop Punk Facebook group, go go find this. What they're doing is uh, on Friday, April 24th, this Friday, if you're listening when this comes out, at 8 p.m., they got uh, seven different guys playing uh, playing some uh, songs all from that, uh, you know, the North Jersey pop punk scene. And uh, Heath is actually going to be playing. So check out Heath Saraceno. On top of that, you also got Tom from uh, Houston Calls. You got uh, Mike from Lane Meyer and uh, Dave Weston from the band Weston. And, I mean, a bunch of other ones. Really good. And uh, the first one they did a few weeks ago, which was cool, too. We had former guest uh, Ben Jorgensen. He was on there. Um, A bunch of uh, other ones I'm forgetting. Like, I can't remember his name. Travis something from uh, Crash Romeo, great pop punk band. He played on there. And a bunch of other ones. So go check out Quarantunes. That is the North Jersey pop punk Facebook group. And this uh, Friday night, Heath Saraceno is going to be playing some songs on there. I'm excited to watch it and uh, should be really, really cool. So just wanted to uh, mention that to check that out. But yeah, that's going to be this week's episode. Thank you so much. And uh, check back next week. I'm going to be talking to Mest frontman Tony Lovato. We're going to be talking about the new Mest record, Masquerade, which is just so killer. I mean, if, if you listen, if you like this podcast, or I mean this this episode, and you're a fan of Midtown, there's probably a good chance you're a Mest fan as well. And uh, we, we have a good one for you next week. If you haven't checked out Masquerade yet, go check it out. I mean, it has... I don't want to call it a throwback pop punk record in the sense that, like, you know, they just purposely wrote something to, like, appease their old fans. But it's just really, you know, it's a good Mest record. And, you know, obviously Mest is from that era. And they put something out that I I think if you're a fan of the old stuff and kind of those bands that they came up with, I think you're going to be a big fan of it. But stay connected with the show. We're at Power Chord Hour on uh, Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. We're on Spotify. And if you've never checked out the radio show, I put up all the music that I play on the radio show each week on our Spotify playlist and a whole lot more. So check us out there. Powercordhour at gmail.com. Hit me up for uh, some free Power Chord Hour swag. I got pins and t-shirts. I'll gladly send you some for free. Just hit me up. And also, like I asked earlier, let me know what your favorite Midtown record is. Hit me up there, powercordhour at gmail.com. Also, check out our YouTube page. Maybe you're listening to this podcast on our YouTube page, but if not, go uh, check it out. It has all our past podcast episodes as well as a bunch of old interviews that I've done on the Power Chord Hour radio show that uh, have not made it onto the podcast. You can go check out all those old interviews there. Got a whole backlog of the last four years. And also, you know, speaking of the radio show, check out the Power Chord Hour We uh, are on 107.9 WFA every Friday night at 10 Eastern, and uh, that's in Jamestown, New York. But if you do not live there, and uh, you may not because we are fairly small, fairly small, I guess, in a way. I mean, we're we're a city, but a city of 30,000. So if you're not one of the 30,000 who live here, uh, you can check out my show as well as WRFA and all the other great programs 
on uh, WRFA's website. She can stream the station there. So check it out, WRFALP.com, and you can stream the station there. So you can stream our shows Friday nights. And also, if you have an iPhone, go in the App Store and just search WRFA, and we do have an iPhone app that you can also stream the station on there. So you can check that out every Friday night. I play a bunch of punk and alternative, and uh, we also air these uh, interviews there. And uh, a lot of times, though, I get to play more music. You know, I uh, I get to kind of, you, you know, go on and play a bunch of stuff afterwards and stuff. So if you're a fan of the bands that I interview on here, you're probably going to be a fan of the music that I play on that. So go check out the Power Chord Hour radio show every Friday night. And uh, until next time, thank you so much for checking this out. Check back next week. Be talking to Tony Lovato of Mest. They'll also be on the radio show this Friday. Actually, it's a little tease if you want to. If you're uh, listening to this as it comes out and you want to hear that Mest interview a little early, it's going to be on the radio show this Friday night, and then it will be released on the podcast on Monday. So, uh, yeah, there, there, there's that if you want to listen to it beforehand. Go check it out this Friday night. But either way, thank you so much for checking out the Power Chord Hour, and until the next one, I'm Anthony Merchant. Thanks for listening.